politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow scorned American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house at Blaze Media. And it is early Wednesday, the 29th, recording a little early to accommodate a very special guest on his way back to California. Child abuse. The greatest national display of child abuse taking place in this country. You know, typically, we hear that everything is for the children. Everything we do is is, is for the good of the children. Socialism, Marxism, open borders, uh, let criminals out of jail, including child molesters, by the way. It's all good for the children. So we have to protect the children. You see, there's something wrong when you dramatically overstate the threat assessment of something confronting you. For example, I was talking with my wife about this. We call it the Anne Frank lockdown. These people that won't leave their houses and their kids are locked down and they're scared. And I call it the Anne Frank lockdown. And if you know what I'm talking about, if you don't, it's um, Anne Frank was a Dutch Jewish girl, teenager, adolescent, who was living during the time of the Holocaust. And when the Nazis were approaching uh, the Netherlands, she hid in an attic and she wrote a diary. And that's how we have it. And we know what went on. Eventually, uh, they caught up with them and killed them. But you cannot imagine the trauma someone would go through as a kid living through that. But there's certain events in world history that confront a people and you know God does that to us and we don't know why God brings upon us things like that and we'll find out in the next world but there's times where you got to do what you got to do and there's there's nothing you can do the actual threat is literally life and death and the only choice you have is to live in a climate an environment that is very traumatic and certainly will trigger fear But then there are times where we overstate the threat through a degree of fear that overshadows the threat by a magnitude of 100. And by doing that, you can't just have the luxury of saying, you know what, I want to err on the side of caution. When you lock down kids, see, we've had a life before us, so we know what normal is. But imagine you're young. I mean, I have a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a baby now. And this goes on indefinitely. What is that going to do to their development? What about their mental well-being? Their emotional well-being? You can't go here. You can't go shopping. You can't do this. You're going to get the virus. You're going to get the virus. Can't go to school. Or if you go to school, you have to go in an insane way. This is exactly what previous generations understood with the adage of there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Who is standing up for us? Who is giving the other side of the story? So when trying to consider who is standing up for us, and there really are very few people and certainly not in elected office, you have to fight this time as if your life depends on it, and more importantly, as if your children's lives depend on it. I've covered politics for my entire adult life And as you all know, I'm very passionate about issues, an array of issues. It could range from immigration to crime to foreign policy, free markets, traditional values. But at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff seems abstract. We live pretty affluent lives these days relative to any time in history. Kind of do what we want in general. Till recently, we had our liberty as much as we didn't like the general direction of the country. But it really came home to me in a very personal way, as I'm sure it has for a lot of you, when earlier this week, there was this conference call at our private school, and I say private school, not a public school, and they just come out of nowhere and say they are going to mandate that all children over preschool 
must wear masks all day. But don't worry, we're going to have mask breaks. And, you know, I said to my I turned to my wife with with a degree of certitude I've never had before. And it wasn't even a question. I said, that's it. We're pulling out this year. And we're likely going to have to find someone to teach them and maybe get a couple people together, some sort of a pod, and do homeschooling. Now, I know a lot of you guys have been urging me to do that for years. We have a lot of homeschooling fans here to begin with. But to me, that was a non-starter. If you would have asked anyone a couple months ago, are you going to shove masks on kids in the heat, day in, day out? Anyone would have looked you in the eye and said, that is child abuse. And now we do this stuff without debate, without hearings, without hearing a second opinion, without any benchmarks of efficacy, timelines. And as we talked about yesterday, if you look at their own words, it is becoming very clear that this is, quote, the new normal, even after this magical vaccine. That is already out there now. Yahoo had a great article on this. They're already saying, look, you know, it's not going to stop it. And we cannot go back to normal until there is not a single case. Well, as you know, with the flu shot, (laughs) there's a lot of flus out there. You know, it certainly helps to a certain degree. But roughly 50% of people who died in California during the 2018 pandemic flu did have the flu shot. So basically, they're telling us we're going to do this forever. Yesterday, we talked about the physiological damage, the damage to the immune system of children, a beautiful immune system that God created, that we are turning them into bubble boys and ironically making them more vulnerable to other viruses, as well as this very virus that they are not vulnerable to precisely because we never treated them like bubble boys and they have gotten other more milder coronaviruses. Today, I want to talk about the emotional, mental health problems, the developmental problems. With us today is Dr. Mark McDonald. He's a board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist, has a private practice in L.A. He was part of this group of second-opinion doctors that, thank God, have really made a lot of noise, and the media censorship, I think, has actually worked to our benefit, that we finally have this second opinion. So with us today is Dr. McDonald to give us that much-needed second opinion on what to do with our children. Dr. McDonald, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Looking forward to it. Well, I was riveted by your speech. Um, and guys, you can go online to Tea Party Patriots' uh, Facebook page and scroll down. You could see the videos of all the speeches. They had a press conference. And I noticed that you said something that I said to my wife. And I want you to elaborate on that. I said to my wife that in many ways, I'd rather they not open the schools at all because it's black and white and it's untenable and it would force people to fight. And then we would understand that it's wrong and we'd open the schools. But if they call this an opening, albeit open it with, you can't be near kids. You better do, and they're they're getting, I mean, I know for my school, they're going to be vicious about this. We're seeing this degree of viciousness all over the place. It's this visceral, panic, fear-driven mentality that almost turns into hatred. Um, and obviously the mask wearing. Do you think I'm making the right decision personally and just in a, the more macro sense? Could you just talk about, let's start with the masks. What sort of psychological damage is going to be incurred in the long run from this uh, clown show. It really has become a clown show, Daniel. And I actually agree with you. I think that at this point, the idea of compromising with the crocodile is, uh, is no longer tenable. Um, You give them half an arm, they're going to take the rest of the other one. And eventually they're going to eat your body and devour your skull. There is no way to win this by giving in. Um, this is not um, an issue about preferences or annoyances or irritations, which we've all had to put up with uh, as parents with children in the public schools. Uh, this takes it to a whole nother level. This is actually abuse. I really hesitate to use that word, sort of like lie, um, but I think it's called for here. 
And the reason why I say that is that it's in knowingly, it's an act of knowingly putting children at risk with no known benefit. In fact, I would say the opposite is true. We, we know that there is not only no benefit, we actually know that there is harm. And when you know that, there's really no other way to describe it except abuse. And it's, it's really unconscionable. Uh, you've talked about, I understand on your show, some of the physical uh, harm that comes to children from these masks. I can speak to the emotional damage and the emotional injury that occurs to children simply from my own experience in my practice. I've had small children between the ages of two to eight, 10 years old who have, through their parents, reported that they're afraid to go outside now. They're afraid to be with adults at the beach. They're afraid to play with their friends. They're afraid to touch their friends. Uh, kids love to play and tumble and stick their hands in dirt and wipe it on their body. And these are all great things. They're helpful not only for the immune system, as you mentioned in your intro, uh, but they're also helpful for development. In fact, they're critical for development. Uh, we know, and this is, this is uncontested, even now in this polarized climate, nobody contests the fact that children's interactions uh, without masks, obviously, with other kids, without distancing, uh, talking, playing, arguing, uh, reconciling, uh, learning diplomacy, uh, learning how to win and lose, uh, learning how to share toys, food, crayons. These are, these are things that we just took for granted because they just happen naturally when we let kids go about them. But when you mask your child and you, you keep your child away from other kids, you're interrupting a normal developmental process. And that developmental process, when interrupted, leads initially to anxiety, depression, bedwetting, nightmares, moving on to phobias, self-harm, emaciation or obesity, uh, the, the terrorized traumatic fear of leaving the home and being outside, interacting, growing, ultimately going away to school, dating, getting married. These are all things that we expect from our children, and now they can't do them. And they're told that not only can they not do them, that if they do do them, they're going to harm themselves and they're going to harm other people. And little children, uh, unlike adults who are also suffering, can't even differentiate between the truth and the fiction. And so they're very, very confused. They're very scared. And their parents are bringing them to my office if they're able to bring them or sending them to me on video and saying, I don't know what to do. My child is collapsing in front of my eyes. I don't know what to do. Give me some advice. And I, I feel really bereft because I can't change society. I don't have magical powers. And so I, I respond by giving them advice that can sort of help them get them through to the next stage, which is hopefully the school reopenings. But if they don't reopen the schools, then they're put in the position like you were in and many other parents, which is, do I send them back with a, not just a halfway approach, but an actual negligent abusive approach to schooling? Or do I pull them out and find some alternative like homeschooling or charter schools, which are also being shot down and banned through the pressure of the teachers union, including the pods, by the way, in Los Angeles, where I'm from, the teachers unions have formally opposed the pods and are actually extorting parents and threatening them if they choose to use a pod. So there are no other options. The end game of this, in my view, is to frighten an entire generation of children with masks and social distancing rules, which are, as I said, abusive, in order to not just confine children to their homes or remove them from the school, but actually to eliminate all options, all choices, and the capacity and the right of self-determination for the parents and their children. That is the end game. And that is far, far, far more terrible, uh, terrorizing and, and, and fear-mongering and fear-inducing, in my view, than just the mask itself. That is truly incredible. When you look at the scope of the man-made plague you described there, juxtaposed to the natural viral plague we're seeing, which is, again, so limited to children. And then even that that limited, the limited number of deaths, they're, they're overwhelmingly um, very serious underlying conditions. It's not even clear. There haven't been too many studies who they are. I mean, I don't know if you have data on that and, and, and not that you could even protect them necessarily from staying home from a school. Um, it's been written about, um, I know D.A. Henderson in the Hopkins paper on lockdowns in 2006 when they explore and reject the idea. They actually talk about more children dying in the Spanish flu when they had a school break in Chicago. Um, so there, there, it's not even a net 
loss. It's there, there is no benefit to what they're doing. But what I'm trying to figure out is, does something like this trigger in the brain a long-term aggressiveness? Because what I'm seeing is this underlying generalized fear of others. If you grow up, especially I, my youngest boy, I have a baby, but the youngest boy is five. And you start seeing everyone is trained now to recoil from another human being. And they're literally going to obsess about that in the school settings. You walk on the on the sidewalk and like someone like runs away from you. It's almost like you can't look at them. What does that do long term to the behavioral behavioral traits of a, of a child as he grows into adolescence and adulthood? Well, unfortunately, we don't really know yet, but we can look at previous examples of trauma and we can estimate what the effect will be years down the road with this one. The unique aspect of this, unfortunately, is that it's not just affecting one age group in one point in time in one geographical area. It's affecting all age groups all over the country or at this point in unlimited, indefinite period of time. And that's what's so, so frightening. My, from my clinical experience, and from what I've seen with trauma and in individuals in the past, what I expect will happen, the longer that this continues, depending on the level of resilience of the individual child, which is the huge sort of variable and wild card here, there will be a large number of children in this generation of the K through 12, and, and even honestly beyond that, because kids today don't really grow up until they're in their mid-20s, as we all know. All of those kids will be arrested at their current stage of development, whatever age that is. And in addition, they will receive this traumatic experience, which I define as too much reality, where they are being bombarded with fear, with paranoia, and with an absence of opportunities to develop appropriate coping mechanisms for those rising tides of emotions. And when that happens for a long time, as in the case of a child that's been locked in a closet, been neglected, been repeatedly sexually assaulted, raped, all of these awful things that happen to individual children or even groups of children, perhaps in a home that's uh, run by a couple of evil adults and they have 15 kids that they use as slaves. We have those in the U.S. and around the world. When this happens to a whole generation of kids, what I expect will happen is that they will wind up missing out on the ability to learn how to negotiate their feelings and they will start to learn in the way that you learn through uh, teaching a dog by beating him with a stick every time he does something bad or giving him food when he does something good, sort of by conditioning to redefine what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad through this, this could call it a talisman, like the mask where they're taught to believe in a sort of a, a set of vampires. You know, it reminds me of that movie, the M. Night Shyamalan film that he did in the very beginning, the very first one called The Village, where a whole group of adults retreats from the city. They form a village to try to escape from the big bad world, and they give birth to children who then grow up. But they teach their children to be afraid of the woods, and they teach them that by dressing up in orange costumes with these nasty looking claws and masks and they hide out in the woods and every now and then they show up and they pretend that these are the monsters and that the kids have to be scared. If you go into the woods, this is what will happen to you. If you take off your mask, you're going to die. And the kids grow up believing this until they don't even want to go into the woods. They want to stay in the village because they believe that if they go out into the woods, they're going to die. This is exactly what happens with children who are taught this. And if you extend it for a long, long period of time, in the end, they will wind up actually believing, not just because they're told we have to do it now because we're told to, but actually believing, almost like a religious belief, that the mask itself is protective against disease and removing the mask will cause you to die. And even if intellectually they, they unlearn that over time, emotionally it will stay with them. And they'll always have this fear that somehow there's out there, there's something dangerous and they won't be able to control it. And I think that's going to affect social relationships. It's going to affect sleep. It's going to affect interest in uh, getting to know people physically. Right now, kids are already stuck in front of screens, phones. They use uh, the word Facebook friend as a replacement for friend. They don't communicate except by text, not even by telephone, by voice. They just use these, these like almost hieroglyphic, I guess they're called emojis, uh, to express their language. Uh, water plant, 
uh, watermelon, vegetable, eggplant, exclamation point, unicorn. And that means something to them. It means nothing to me. And that's how they communicate because they're afraid to actually go and talk to somebody. So God knows what will actually happen, but I can tell you it's going to be awful. It's going to be nothing like the way that we grew up. And I think it's going to limit their potential as fully functioning adults who will then, of course, be in charge of our country and our world as we grow older. And that, that really disturbs me. And again, these are things that we never thought about in March. Nobody ever envisioned they would take it this far, this long. But I think these are things we really have to start thinking about precisely now that they're talking about this new normal. Again, if it's closed, you know, the cases stop, okay, reopen. But, you know, for most of the country, it really has been very mild. Even in the so-called hotspots now, the, the deaths are really low. And again, we're talking about for the vulnerable population or the general adult population, certainly for kids. And yet still, they're talking about doing this indefinitely. So I think those long-term things are not exaggerations. We are in uncharted territory. And one of the things I think about is, so my kids are, the, the, the boys are five, eight, and 10. And so they're not at that adolescence period where you have a lot of at-risk teens. But from where they are, the biggest struggle is, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? There's nothing to do. There's nothing to do. Um, you can't take them shopping in a lot of places. Uh, you can't. The only thing we could do is go hiking on trails, but you know, July kind of got us with the hundred degree weather. So you know, it was good. It was good in the spring. There is literally no, and I have no answers, and there is nothing to do with them. My question to you is: I'm seeing how hard that is at that age. I know you deal with older kids as well. What does this do to at risk teens that have a lack of constructive activities? and a future to look forward to, where do they channel that? Where do they land? Violence, porn, drugs. I've seen it in my practice now for six months. I lost my first patient in eight years to not the coronavirus, but to the lockdown. Uh, this was a, a girl actually a little older. She was just, I think just breaking 30, but she was still somewhat immature. And she was going to Antioch College, which is a program out in California and L.A., actually, that uh, teaches uh, psychology. She was getting her therapist degree. And she had a therapist herself. She had a remote history of substance abuse that was under excellent control. She was on medications for uh, sort of emotional ups and downs, doing really well, very productive. And she didn't make her follow-up visit in May. I got a call from her stepmother who said that uh, she had died. They found her body in the apartment when uh, they couldn't reach her and they asked the neighbor to check on her, she had overdosed on fentanyl and she was not a fentanyl addict and she wasn't even a user. She'd been abstinent for years, but she became confined. Her school shut down. She was locked in her apartment. Basically her therapist wouldn't see her because God forbid you should actually go see your therapist face to face. You might die. You might kill your therapist. So all she had was zoom appointments, which I know are, almost next to useless when you're, when you're in need of a real therapist. All the AA meetings were shut down from day one. All the Al-Anon, everything related to substance abuse that was gathering in, in physical space completely shut down. All of it. And she had nowhere to turn. And so she turned to drugs. She tried once. She fell asleep and felt great when she woke up, escaped for 12, 18 hours of her depressed, sad life. The next time she tried the fentanyl, she got it from a different dealer thousand times more potent, passed out, stopped breathing, never woke up. Dead, age 29, 30 years old, perfectly healthy girl. Everything in front of her, gone. And I have teenage patients in my practice who are, who are now using drugs because they have nothing else to do at home and their parents aren't really observing them. And it's very easy to sneak things in and out of the house now. And uh, you can uh, vape marijuana using what looks like a USB device called Juul. You don't even have to smoke in your room and get the room all smelled up. Uh, they can uh, easily find alcohol, all kinds of nasty club drugs on the street. It's very accessible. Porn is everywhere. There's no way to filter it. Kids are locked in the rooms all day, supposedly going to Zoom school, remote learning. But a lot of them are just watching porn. They're playing video games. Uh, they're sexting, texting, uh, violence, beating up their, their brothers and sisters, abusing them when the, when the parents aren't at home. I know this is happening because I hear it from the kids and I hear it from the patients. They are learning not just unhealthy behaviors. They are learning self-destructive, 
homicidal and suicidal behaviors because they have no outlets. They have nowhere to go. They have no YMCA, no church, no uh, organized sports, no shopping, no parks. The park in my neighborhood was closed two days before I left. Again, a private park. Private park closed after having been reopened for about a month. You know why they closed the park? The Homeowners Association announced in their formal bulletin, we are closing the park for 30 days. We may reopen it in 30 days. We may not. Because we've heard reports that there were too many children playing in the park without a mask. And so you know what they did? They decided to sanitize the park by spraying the grass with a toxic chemical because kids like to roll around in the grass. And God forbid there should be a virus there that the kids would catch and give it to grandpa and kill him. So the park was closed because it was unsafe because the grass had been toxified with chemicals. But once the chemicals wash off, they're still going to keep it closed because we don't want the kids to be playing without masks. And maybe we'll open it in a month, maybe not. This is the height of summer. Kids don't have school. Kids don't have anywhere to go. They're like your kids. The only thing they have to do is go assemble in the park and play. They can't do that now. They have to stay home. This is happening everywhere, 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 everywhere. And without those options, this is what I said earlier is going to happen. And it's going to happen to good kids and they're going to turn into bad kids. I, I am I am 100% sure of it. Because human beings weren't designed to be that way. I mean, and, and especially, no. I, I mean, in any generation, but especially in this generation where the mental health has really been fragile with all the things you're talking about and the, the screens and everything. God, I wish I can invent that stuff. Um, just just <laughs> bad awful. enough now. I know. I, I mean, that's, only getting worse. That's the thing. And, and, and without that, we probably wouldn't have had the sewer pipe of all this stuff. And I mean, I mean, it's like the, the, the level it, it reminds me of Galileo and the and the, you know, just the medieval Catholic Church and what was going on there. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, some of this medieval superstition with some of these things, what you just described, it has five different erroneous premises there. So you have outdoor transmission, child transmission, that children are at risk to begin with, that masks would help. I mean, and... And what, to, to and me, that they transfer it to adults. Don't forget that. Uh, yeah, because that's, that's the, the most recent excuse for not bringing kids back to school. Yeah. The excuse used yeah. to be kids will kill each other. And then we kept pounding and pounding the fact that the CDC itself has reported that in the state of California, as of last Friday, a grand total of zero children have died of coronavirus. Zero. Over 100 have died of flu just in the state and over 200 have died in the country of influenza, which disproportionately targets children, whereas the coronavirus disproportionately avoids children because they have natural immunity to it. And in Europe, the study that was published by the University of Dresden Hospital two Mondays ago found that after looking at 2,000 antibody tests of children over several months in the school system, not a single child was found to have transmitted the virus to an adult or to a teacher, not a single one. In fact, the author's study was quoted as saying that children appear to block the transmission of the disease, like insulation in a wire that blocks the transmission of electricity. And then another study came out soon after that, I believe it was Scotland, that showed that not a single reported and confirmed case of child to adult transmission has occurred in any circumstance anywhere in the world. So that whole defense of protecting the teachers has been completely thrown out of thrown out. Uh, it's in, in worse than what you're describing. It's even worse than that. Kids actually do pass things to teachers, not COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, but they pass HCoV oc43 and some of the other coronavirus colds they actually do get them and transmit them and there is now a german study that posits and and you know it's not a clinical trial it's it's a biomedical study that you know four thousand uh individuals surveyed and they found that people in my demographic you're in your 30s and your 40s with with young kids but also they had teachers in the sample too because you're exposed to young kids it's the next rung in the ecosystem of immunology. So not only do the kids get these coronaviruses that give them the cross immunity, but they give those coronaviruses to those adults around them. So they have found that those adults, pound per pound when adjusting for BMI and age and health status, seem to have a lower rate of getting serious COVID cases because they had that cross-reactive immunity from those simple colds 
that you want to get, you know, often like I'm, you know, teachers, I'm sure curse it out. And I do as well. Damn, these kids come up with these stupid colds. But you know what? Now, now we realize that was a blessing. That was a blessing that we have that it's part of the, the natural system. And I mean, I, question I have for you, you know, you see some of these studies and you wonder if they're bogus. I, I reported on this in April and I wanted to get a mental health professional's opinion on this. You mentioned Switzerland. Switzerland did a study and they found that in their country, 2.1% of the population will suffer an average of 9.7 years loss of life due to the lockdown trauma and mental health problems. I guess they include in that drugs, alcohol abuse, um, suicides. And you know they have this in their model that it, it, in their country, it would add up to 1.8 million years of life lost. Um, for the U.S., I, they didn't do this, but I extrapolated and said, look, if you use that same methodology, it would be a cumulative loss of 67.58 million years of life lost nationwide. And it, it would mean 6.9 million Americans would lose an average of, of, of nearly 10 years of life. And I was thinking, you know, you look at the coronavirus and, you know, the average life expectancy or the average um, age of death or the median age of death of COVID victims in many states is at or above life expectancy. Where, That's such an excellent yeah. point. So it can really you extrapolate is. on that? I mean, are these real legitimate points of the years of life lost adding up some of these adverse mental health issues? Not only are they legitimate, I think they're the only legitimate way to evaluate risk and benefit, even more so than lives lost, because that's really just a rough estimate. As you pointed out, the average age of death in this country is 78, 79 years around there. The average age, that's of all natural causes, right? The average age of death of patients who were diagnosed with coronavirus and found to have died from it, not with it, and the two have been muddied since the very beginning, so it's hard to parse it out. But, but by the way, I didn't but, mean to interrupt, but the, 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 mm -hmm. it's funny, but it's kind of a sick irony. A lot of these alcohol and drug overdoses of 25, 30-year-olds, well, you know, a lot of people have COVID. They're asymptomatic. Guess what? That's a COVID death. But anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. In Los Angeles, every almost every day, I hear a report of some guy that was killed in a motorcycle accident after he <laughs> was struck by a bus and flew 75 feet to smash his head without a helmet through a plate glass window, died of a, a severed uh, arterial system with blood loss, and his, uh, his death was due to coronavirus. It, it's like an old Woody Allen movie. It's, <laughs> you know, in the obituary, he reads the column and he says, you know, 75-year-old man uh, died of heart disease, respiratory failure, uh, ARDS, severe obesity, diabetes, and a gunshot wound to the head. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just absurd. It's, it's really like a joke almost, except it's a sick joke. When 50% of the deaths from this disease are in people age 80 or older, and the average age of death from all natural causes is less than 80, as I said, doesn't it not mean that those people are already in negative years of life lost? In other words, they already died statistically, according to the actuarial and, and, and tables. And just to put so a punctuation. They haven't lost any years. To put a punctuation on that point is that what we found with some of the data, and I spoke about this yesterday from Michael Levitt, the Stanford uh, Nobel laureate, who uh, put out this information from the UK, they noticed a, a huge drop in June. And this is in Wales, but I think you could find similar things from the CDC here in you know, cardiovascular deaths, influenza deaths, actually. Now, some of it we have been accusing and saying, look, you know, they died of that, like we're saying, and they coded as COVID. And I think there's an element of that. But the point he was making that opened my mind, there's a, a more subtle, a subtler point here, that it could be a lot of them did die from COVID, but the idea was they were literally going to die within a month or two. So if you have a certain batch every week, every month of, of cardiovascular deaths, pulmonary deaths, Alzheimer deaths, um, so when you see it taking from that, it, this was literally the angel of death's version at this point. It got, this is what got them, meaning it's not that, oh, he was 83 years old and he had another 15 years left on him, which some people do, and that was taken away. And undoubtedly, there have been cases like that. But generally speaking, what it seems is that and the more I study this, even among seniors outside of nursing homes where there are certain factors that make it you know, more risky, the IFR, when you get the true denominator of the number of ha people who have had it, 
a lot of them are still asymptomatic and a lot of them don't die. The majority don't die. Overwhelming majority don't die. People like my dad, who's only 70 and in excellent health, you know, a little bit of an elevated risk for me, but it's not that much more if you look at the actual numbers. So a lot of these deaths were really, I mean, heck, Niall Ferguson, the the, the lockdown king of, of the world, testified before the UK parliament that two thirds of the UK deaths will be from people who would have died within six to eight months. Correct. You know, if you look at the average, the sort of the curve by age and death, obviously it gets steeper as you get older, but that's primarily because people who are older tend to die more. It's sort of obvious. And <laughs> we laugh because it's so obvious. So how much more is that curve steep with coronavirus? Very modestly, actually, very modestly. The, reason why people die when they get older is they tend to have more comorbidities. And the CDC itself states that 93% of all of the coronavirus deaths of all ages, all of them have an average of 2.5 comorbidities, meaning serious medical conditions. So if you subtract that out, you're left with 7% in the entire population of supposedly healthy people that have died of this disease. And more than half of them are over age 80 in their nursing home. So now you're down to what, two and a half, three 3%, maybe three and a half. What's three and a half percent of 100 and what are we at? 120,000 reported deaths, of which probably 50 percent are the motorcycle accident examples I gave you before. Now you're looking at numbers that are probably in the realm of 10 or 20,000 people. That's less than a third of the number of people that have died of influenza so far this year. One less than a third. So now it's starting to look, if you just do the math, the basic simple math, that this disease is way, 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 way less fatal than we ever thought, even in older people, and that the only people who are really dying in any statistically significant way from it, again, there's always outliers. That's true with every disease. We always have to put that to the side. The only statistically significant group of people in this entire country that are at risk from this are people who are very sick, period, young or old. If you're older and sicker, you're you're even more likely. But basically, if you're sick, you're at risk. If you're not, you're fine. Even if you're 80 years old, you're probably going to be okay. And children are essentially immune. So if that fact is, is, is not in dispute, and it is not in dispute, but it's often forgotten or it's ignored, if that fact is being used, or if it were to be used, I'll use the subjunctive tense here because it's not, if it were to be used in terms of deciding on our policies about walking, masking, schooling close, uh, closing schools, school closures, uh, closing businesses and works, parks, uh, uh, musical events, recreation, all of the things that we've lost in our life, we would actually find ourselves stunned with the, the insanity of these decisions. Not, not just the sort of, oh, oops, careless, uh, that's too bad, but the, the absolute suicidal, self-destructive quality of these, these decisions, not made in an emergency state, mind you, because of the first two weeks, we didn't know what end was up. No, the, the, the Imperial College London told us that 2.5 million people in England would die. Extrapolate that to 22.5 million people in the U.S. would die. God, what are we going to do? We got to stop everything. Hold the, you know, stop the presses. But after two weeks, we knew that was all bogus because we saw the statistics that you just and I just related. So ever since then, and now it's been what six months, seven months now since we've been shut down essentially in the whole country. Since that time, we have not been in a true emergency, but we have instilled a state of emergency into the minds of all of the people, adults and children alike, to the point where we believe that every day we wake up, we are still in a state of emergency. In other words, we are in a state of panic and terror and, and, and complete PTSD-like trauma indefinitely. And that is what is keeping us from being able to move forward and to think rationally. And until that fear goes away, which is based on in my view, a sort of unholy alliance of politicians, media, and special interest groups opposed to people, opposed to choice, opposed to freedom. Until that stops, we are going to be unable to access our rational mind, our rational thoughts, our decision-making abilities, and to go out and live our lives. And that is the real tragedy here. This is not a pandemic of virus. This is a pandemic of emotion and fear. We have to attack it. And if we don't attack it, we will never get out of this. And I don't know what will happen to our country and to our children. That's some tough medicine, flatten the curve of the emotional pandemic. But the problem is, and I just want to close with this, um, you're you know trained in adult psychoanalysis. So we'll move on from child psychiatry. We'll move on to adults because it's ultimately going to be adults 
that are making these decisions, not children. How do you get inside their brains? And and, and that's really my question. Like, what, what, what we're talking about, some maybe don't know it enough, but you, you try to explain it to people and facts don't work. This is what we're finding, finding in this industry, that no matter how we explain it, it just doesn't matter. Like, so we, we thought, and getting back to the children, we thought, okay, a lot of this stuff is a little bit subtle. It's, it's kind of murky. You have to have a degree of context because the virus is dangerous in a certain way and whatever. But children was black and white. I mean, we literally had the numbers, the death rate, the hospitalization rate. Um, and it was less than seasonal flu, much less the 2018 pandemic flu, which nobody heard of. You know what the media doesn't tell you can't hurt yes, you. You know, correct. and that, that that's a whole nother story. But you know, even then, it's like we're losing that issue right now. We did the wrong thing, even though it was black and white. So, so how do we break what 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 sort of content could people like me be putting out? What what sort of strategies? And and when you answer that, could you explain how could you account for such a degree of conformity? Like I am, sh- I never would have envisioned this. I thought at least if you know if, if you count on conservatives, conservatives are beaten down in America. They don't like to, they don't riot, they don't do stuff, they don't make trouble. I, I knew you can't count on them, but I thought some of these younger people, like they can't do without their clubs and their. Hedonism. I mean, I mean, at least some of that would come to to the forefront and and help us out. But I'm just shocked. It's like almost anything that's thrown in that trough, no matter how illogical, is just slurped up. I mean, I'm trying to figure out where's that floor. If they said to put a plastic bag over your head for ten hours, would they do that as well? Like, how does that happen? Well, you know, Ben Shapiro likes to say facts don't care about your feelings. In this, in this case, feelings don't care about your facts. People's feelings are so stuck right now. Regardless, they're impervious to facts. Absolutely impervious. Larry Elder always says, you know, facts to a liberal or like a kryptonite to Superman. Well, they're not here. They're not. Feelings rule supreme. And I have been troubled by the compliance for months as well. And I've wondered, why is it that putting the facts issue aside, why is it that people are so docile, not just docile to do something that is sort of of silly and kind of fun, like everybody has to walk backwards from this block to that block because that's the rule. Okay, well, I'm still going to get there. I'm just going to walk backwards. It's kind of silly, but it doesn't change my life. These are big, big losses of liberties where you can walk in what direction, placing some sort of Muslim medical gear over your face that actually causes you to have a higher risk of infection and passing out and crashing your car, being able to not go to, not being able to go to work, being locked out of school, exercise, fitness, seeing your doctor. These are massive, massive limitations in liberty that I would never have expected people to agree with so wholeheartedly ever, ever, ever in this country. Uh, even at the beginning, I was surprised, but after a few weeks and it was obvious that people weren't dying in the streets, like in, Camus the plague. He talks about the pirouette of the rats dancing as the blood rolls out of their eyes. That was when the plague started. And they knew that the plague was was alive because the rats stopped moving. They didn't see them anymore. They couldn't hear them. And then when the rats came back, they knew that the plague was over. We didn't see that. We didn't see that happening. Most of us don't even know anybody that's that's been sickened, much less died of this disease, unless we have elderly parents and you know, people in Alzheimer's disease with Alzheimer's disease in convalescent homes, because it doesn't kill young people unless they're very sick to begin with. And, you know, we don't know a lot of young sick people because young people tend to be healthy. So it's all sort of obvious. So why are people so compliant? The only explanation that I that I have is that they started out compliant because they wanted to believe that the people in charge had their best interests at heart, given that they, the individuals, didn't really have the capacity to sort through the information. I can't figure it out, but I know that guy out there, that Fauci guy or that Burks woman or that fake doctor, Barbara Ferrer, who uh, purports to be the doctor for L.A. County Public Health, and even though she's actually a social worker and doesn't know anything about clinical medicine, has never even seen a patient. Those people put their trust in governance because they thought they must know better than me. It's so confusing. And then over time, even though it pained them to give up these liberties, sort of, not terribly, but a little bit, they became comfortable. 
What do we have at home if we can't cook and can't go to the store? We have Postmates. What if we're not able to get groceries? Well, we have Amazon Fresh. What if we don't have uh, any more toilet paper or Kleenex or uh, barrettes for our children? Well, we go to Amazon and we order them and they're delivered to the house. We don't really need to go out anymore. I mean, we do need to go out, but we don't really think that we do. Yes. We can work from home as long as we have Wi-Fi, right? We have online learning and they're, for they're our children. They're so smart. They're so smart, these people. They knew where that line was and they facilitated yes. it because it really wasn't that Anne Frank lockdown. I mean, the bottom line is no. it wasn't. Um, no, it wasn't. And, it wasn't and, at all. And I, I've noticed that too. I noticed that because I, I noticed the psychology of that and it's really – Shocked me because I, I live in a neighborhood where you have a lot of these people doing the quasi and Frank lockdown. But then I I've noticed with them, they're as fearful as they are. It will adjust to the group think of the media. So if you would have told them in March or April, OK, you could have a wedding. You could go to an event. J- j- just wear a mask. Just wear a mask. No, are you kidding me? I'm going to die. But now it's like the mask, the mask. So on the one hand, you know, they're very fearful, but it's it adjusts to whatever they need to make their life work at a given moment. That's where the science is. You know, so if, if, if for me, I have a government job, I could work from home. So then, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a problem to go out. If I have to go out. Well, yeah, but but the science is that the mask helps, you know, wherever that line is, people will do it. Another interesting thing I've seen and and tell me if there's any any term for this or any theory behind this but i've noticed and this is true of liberalism in, in general but but certainly here conservatives tend to debate make intellectual arguments take a long time threaten to do something i mean trump does this all the time he threatens to do something on twitter and then you know holds himself exposes himself to incoming fire but then doesn't do it what the left does is something very smart they come, they see, they conquer. They do. They do. And what that and what that accomplishes is what I notice with people is the fact that you go ahead and do something and you have the the temerity to get it done, it proves the veracity of the principle behind it. I mean, it doesn't and it shouldn't, but in the eyes of people, what is the biggest proof that coronavirus is a serious threat to kids? Well, the fact that schools are closed. That 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 That's confirmed. Right. You see what I'm saying? Like they did That's such right. an insane, dramatic thing. So I go out and say, "Look, come on, guys, this is a hoax. Not that the virus is a hoax. And it, 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 it's a it's a threat in this way. But look, and I try to explain. But and they kind of look at me and they know I'm a smart guy and they know I'm schooled on this and they know I research and they kind of believe me. But like, come on, Daniel, are you saying this is all a lie? We can't. We shut this all down. It's so unbelievable what they're doing that it's truly unbelievable. You, you, you make a good point. What you're pointing to is sort of like a, a confirmation bias where you go outside and you say, I could go either way. I could be scared and anxious. I could feel free. And you look around you and you see everybody wearing a mask. And so the fact that everybody is wearing a mask confirms your inclination that there might be something dangerous out there, which you wouldn't have felt if everybody had been walking freely. You would have said, oh, it's just me, another, another normal day. And it has nothing to do with actual infection or rates or percentages. And as you said, all of these wonderful numbers and statistics that intellectuals and, and, and conservatives love to talk about in order to prove points, because those facts, they really don't affect the feelings of the people. What affects the feelings is what they see around them and what they're told is schools are closed. Ergo, it's dangerous. The park is closed. Therefore, it must be infected. It must be contaminated. And kids that play must have infected the park. It's a kind of circular reasoning with confirmation bias thrown in that leads people to perpetuate these these fear, some and fear inducing behaviors. I did believe at one point that simply challenging people to overcome their fear, to face it, to push through it, to act as if they weren't afraid, even though they were, the way that you teach obsessive compulsive patients to get through their contamination fears or uh, patients with social phobia to go uh, push through their isolations and their autism and staying at home by saying, just get your hands dirty and tolerate it for an hour. Just go outside and say hello to the first person on the street. I know you're going to feel like you're going to die, but you know what? You won't die. 
And after you wait an hour, you're not going to die of infection. After you say hello to that person in the street, you're not going to pass out and crack your head open from shame and embarrassment. You're going to feel a rush. It's going to pass. And you're going to say, wow, I'm okay. I'm safe. And then you're going to do it again and again and again until it's extinguished. This is an actual proven, probably the only proven way to get rid of these sort of compulsive behaviors and, and phobias. I used to think that that would work with the people with the masks and the distancing, but it doesn't. And it's, it's not going to because the forces in society against it are so powerful. I believe at this point, uh, the only way that we can reasonably end this within, say, a month or two, as opposed to years with this mythical vaccine that's going to come out of the mythical vaccine unicorn factory that's never going to happen, at least not in a way that's going to work. Historically, it's never worked. The only way it's going to happen now is if we're able to offer somebody a real talisman not just a mask, a clove of garlic against the vampires, a six foot distancing rule where the air doesn't pass between you five feet. It does. And it kills you that kind of nonsense, but something that actually will allow people to feel 24 seven that they are safe without all the silliness. And that is as we, the frontline doctors here in DC today have been trying to get across our point and communicate to the public. And we were very successful we got up to 175,000 concurrent views on Breitbart, a record, and 17.18 million reposts before Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube deplatformed us. And after Donald Trump Jr. and President Trump both retweeted our posts and had their tweets deleted and Don, and Don Jr.'s uh, Twitter account was suspended, until that happened, what we were trying to say was there is a treatment for this disease and there is a prophylaxis meaning something that will ward it off. And it's hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine has proven to be safe, effective, and basically free. It's almost like a few bucks a week. Nothing. costs nothing. And if people could take that, not because they're, they're at risk for dying. 99% of the population has virtually no risk of dying this disease. And yet they're wearing masks and social distancing and staying home and all that oh. stuff because they're scared. But if they took that, the scared ones, then they would go outside and they'd lose the mask and they go back to work it, and they go back to school. They'd say, funny. I'm protected. Look at this. Damn, I never thought about that. There goes the fear. Fear I is never gone thought about it. with a you're little giving, pill. You're giving a diagnosis like as if you would diagnose Prozac or something. See, you're, you're not an ER doctor like some other ones. You're a psychiatrist and you're pushing hydroxychloroquine. It's, I never thought of it from that perspective, but you're saying that, I mean, A, you know, it does foreclose on the small chance that it becomes very serious, you know, from a clinical standpoint. But then you're, you're saying that you need to give people this placebo because, the, you know, and the, that's the one thing none of us have been offering. We've been denying the feelings. You're saying, here, look, you don't have to worry about it. This works. Um, I know we're going over time. Do you have time for one more question? Okay, so... Now that you got into the hydroxychloroquine thing, I, I want to get your view on where this opposition is coming from. So clearly there's an element of, you know, from the drug companies, obviously, well, why will we let the truth come out about a drug that costs nothing? That's that's an old drug when we can make all this money. And then if they if the truth does get out, it forecloses our ability to um, earn all that profit from these drugs we're coming out with. I, that I understand. But. Do you really think, and I, I, I mean, man, I don't want to think this, but do you think? I've thought it, believe me. I, do you, I, I've do you think it, even that you they, <laughs> because you basically said it, you basically said it, that there's the drug company vantage point, but from the political, kind of more the political guys, which the two obviously mix, that they don't want such a simple cure because they want the fear, because they want to control. That's basically, in a nutshell, what I was going to say, without making it partisan in terms of party or naming wings oh, in this direction and that direction. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I would. I would use perhaps a word that encompasses all of the actors that have nefarious uh, incentives, and I would call them statists. I believe that the politicians, the media, and the special interests who are of the statist mindset. And, and obviously leftists are all statists by definition, but there's also some people on the right or Republicans or independents, what have you, that are also statists. They have coalesced. And I would almost say cons conspired, although I, I, I don't like that word because it starts to make me sound like I'm a nut. 
uh, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist at no, all. No, I think it's organic. I started to feel I don't it. think they got I, in a room. I, yes. I don't I don't think so either. I don't think that they've they've sat in a room like a, like a star chamber and said, you know, you're going to do this. I'm going to do that. But I think that their objectives are so aligned that they naturally feed one another, which is to aggrandize as much power as possible in their own hands while depleting the power of the average American. And they do that with the end goal of maintaining and sustaining a, uh, a top-down approach, not just with government, but with all uh, forms of power and leadership, whether it's uh, corporate, whether it's union, whether it's politics, whether it's media, so that they can live in a rarefied environment where nobody challenges them, where they maintain their fame, their power, their income, their ability to live a very pure, rarefied life where none of the policies that restrict the freedoms of others affect them ever, because they always have a way out. They always have an excuse. They always have income or people or friends or connections to obviate the need for them to follow these rules. And the only way to do that right now is to maintain fear. And unfortunately, as you sort of crossed into that line where it started to get scary, and I think it is, I do think we have something to be scared of. It's not the coronavirus. And it's this, it's that in order to maintain that fear, they must sacrifice the country. They must. And that means they must allow this to continue, even if it kills the country. It sounds insane, because why would you want to live in a country that you've killed? Why would you want to rule in a country that you've killed? And yet they do, because they are so narcissistic. They have such a hypervaluation of themselves that they believe not that they're right or wrong. It's not even about that. It's, it's much more craven. It's that they believe that it's best for them to take what they can and preserve it and ensure it and guarantee it, even if it means killing off everyone else in the country. I really, sadly, I believe that's what it's come to. It is that, it is that profoundly evil and diabolical. Doctor, is your subset of the medical profession, the mental health profession, is it better the same or worse than you know, the physical doctors? In other words, what I'm saying is, what has been so shocking throughout this ordeal is how doctors have fallen in line with ideas that violate everything they learned in medical school. I literally see doctors themselves not just jumping on board this, but themselves crumpling a mask in their pocket, putting it out, like cross-contaminated. I mean, no doctor, even I'm, 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 I'm smart enough to know this, you know, before March would have ever said that, that not only is that um, effective, but but that there wouldn't be a concern of cross contamination. You would use it like a like a layman, like just it's just bizarre. So the we we literally have the media driving medicine, like whatever the media says. I watched this with through a continuity of observations how this grew. Even CDC was holding strong with the mass. Even CDC, the media started doing the shaming, and the doctors got on board the media. Are you, is the mental health profession any different? Are, is there a slice of the profession that's like, whoa, we have a major problem, especially with the kids. Whoa, this is scary. You can't be doing this. It's unfortunately even worse. Oh, no. I work with therapists as well as with psychiatrists because I do a lot of therapy and I train in psychoanalysis. I can tell you that without exception, every single therapist and psychoanalytic colleague that I know in the city of L.A., shuttered his or her practice the third week of March and has not seen a single patient face-to-face -face in over four months, not a single one. They believe that it is morally wrong to have a patient sitting with them in their office, a patient that they sit 10, 15 feet away from, a patient that they don't touch, a patient that uh, does not dress or undress or touch surfaces, it just walks in, sits down on the couch and talks and then leaves. And all the offices have been shuttered. And that is also true for most of the psychiatrists who now have switched to telemedicine. Part of the reason is peer pressure. Part of the reason is, honestly, it's just easier. You can, you can do it from home. The patient likes it. The therapist, the doctor likes it. You don't even have to do an exam because you're just talking and you prescribe remotely. So I think that's partly just laziness. But... I also think that there is an element in the mental health profession 
of hyper empathy for the fear of the patient. The patient is that scared to come in, then you must not only feel bad for the patient, you must also tolerate it and collude with it and say, I understand you're so scared. Absolutely stay home as long as you want and we'll do the sessions by phone or by Skype. I would not want to terrorize you by forcing you to come into the office and force you to sit there and feel like you're going to die for an hour with me, which is actually what you should be doing. And it's exactly what you'd be doing if your patient had a contamination fear or a social phobia or didn't want to leave the house. You wouldn't say do sessions by phone while you're in your underwear uh, in, in bed. You'd say, no, get your clothes on, get in the car, get to my office and tolerate it because that's the way you're going to get through this. That's the way you're going to grow up. But we do that with children. I want ice cream. I want pizza. No, you're going to have healthy food and they have a tantrum, but you give it to them anyway. That's what you do with patients. I'm not saying patients are children, but it's the same sort of primitive response mechanism you have, to, you have to understand. So unfortunately, yes, therapists, psychiatrists, they are not only as bad as other physical medicine doctors, they're actually worse, and they have profoundly disappointed me. And I am probably the only one that I know in, in Los Angeles that is still insisting that healthy patients come to my office. And I've lost patients. I've lost six, seven patients in the last few months who have said abjectly refuse to come in. They won't do it. Some of them have accused me of lying to them. Uh, One of them said, well, you're giving me facts, but what are you? You're just a psychiatrist. I'm going to defer to an infectious disease specialist. Of course, the one that they like, right? Um, I don't take it personally. I, I know it's a rationalization for their own desire to stay home, but that's what we've come to. So no, no, psychiatrists, therapists are not immune. They're human. And in some cases, I think they're even weaker than uh, the surgeons and the internal medicine doctors because they, they, they are so feeling oriented. They believe that feelings like perception is reality when feelings are not reality. They're simply a state of mind. And what really defines you is not your feelings, but your actions. And they've, co- they've confounded the two together, which is really unfortunate. Oh, man. On a, on a sour note... Um, we were going to do half the show, but we wound up doing the full show. This was, again, very enlightening. People need to feel the pain. If they don't see the light, they need to feel the pain, and we need to make them feel the pain to fight. People have to fight for our country. This is not going to come back alone. They will not see back that power that they have grabbed, and now you know the full array of stuff. But Dr. McDonald has given us the feelings to fight back against feelings. And that's really what you need. And I think this this is a key to it. The children are the key. Please keep us updated, folks, if you're in the L.A. area and, and, and you're in this uh, ordeal where you need a child psychiatrist. Um, I've certainly, you know, been in been in that uh, uh, realm recently because of this. So, uh, you know where to find him. Uh, Mark McDonald, MD.com. Dr. McDonald, thanks so much for joining us. Please come back again. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Now, folks, as you listen to Dr. McDonald and listen over again, replay it, I want you to think a couple of thoughts, ponder a couple of thoughts as you listen to this, as you send it to your friends and relatives. Number one, as you could tell, this is not just about money. Oh, all you care about is the economy. No, no, no. This, this is lives. This is the mental and emotional well-being of an entire generation of children, adolescents. We cannot even begin to imagine the consequences moving forward. But then I also want you guys to think about this at a political level. Imagine if Trump would have had people like McDonald from day one at a roundtable, a press conference televised, giving the mental health aspect. You would have some of those other doctors talking about hydroxychloroquine. You would have John Ioannidis speaking about the epidemiological aspects of it. What would have been so hard for Trump to have assembled the team of second opinion experts that are that just sound smarter, sound saner than Fauci and these other clowns that us at Blaze Media have been able to assemble? And find. Even today, as these doctors are prepared to leave Washington, they're there for a three day summit. Why is the administration not championing them? I know the president's been asked about it, especially from the hydroxy standpoint, and that um, I forget the name of that doctor. Um, that you know, she's she's gained a lot of notoriety, and the left is going crazy about her. 
And my understanding is I think they've they've gotten some meetings with the administration. But it's like, why are we still playing second fiddle? Why are we playing in a way game and not a home game in the Trump administration? I mean, he dug his grave. We've been talking about this for months. And again, you, you, you think about this upcoming bill. I don't know if they're going to vote on it next week. This stupid Senate bill where they throw another trillion dollars at the states. The states, the medical profession to screw us. The, the education cartel, they throw $110 billion in this GOP bill. We'll talk about it more on Friday and Monday when I come back. But they throw all this money at the very education cartel that's abusing our kids. How hard is it to hold a press conference, have someone like Dr. McDonald up there, talk about what they're doing, and say, I will not give another penny to the education cartel, to the state governors, which he hands out, there's like a slush fund in this bill to go and abuse our kids. We're just not going to do that. I mean, this is the thing. It's not like they have like the compelling science and data and history and tradition on their side. And we're coming with a novel approach. It's just the opposite. I understand the president's not good at doing this on his own. He intuitively knows we're right, but he's kind of confused, doesn't know how to articulate it. But get these people. And he should have people around him, at least a few, and I know they're there, that he listens to that could help assemble this team. Hey, look. Our offer stands. We're here. We could put together a task force. It's pretty easy. Because we pretty much have it through all the guests that 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 I have and, and Beck and, and Steve Dace. Get a second opinion. I mean, it's perfect messaging, and everyone understands that. You say, look, there's a lot of things we don't know. These are murky times. But what they are asking of us is something so severe and so irrevocable. Shouldn't we get a second opinion before we embark on this? Anyway, got to run now. I'm sorry I'm going to be out tomorrow, but I hope this will hold you over. It's a longer show today. There's a lot more going on DACA. Trump's continuing DACA. He's claiming he's not going to have new uh, issuance, but going to extend the old ones for another year. So much for immediately getting rid of DACA. So much for issuing a new, new APA and getting rid of it. More equivocation. You already found out this one DACA person killed three retired police officers on motorcycles, repeat drunk driver. Now it looks like a fourth is in very serious condition. Crazy stuff going on, on the crime front. This unbelievable GOP spending bill. Again, are you better off than you were four years ago? I don't want to hear this garbage of, oh, the November election. I want to know what you're going to do now and what we're going to do after November, irrespective of who wins. We got to organize. You got to take this stuff to your county officials, school board members, county commissioners get in their faces and punch back twice as hard till Friday thank you all for listening and God bless